Today is Wednesday. It's November 8th, 2023. Look at that. It's 2.42 in the afternoon. Let's get rolling. I'm John Williams. Thanks for finding the Mincing Rascals podcast. Portions of this broadcast Saturday nights on WGN Radio. Share us with your friends. You can hear my radio show weekdays on WGN from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Burke from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Kate Flies, former Chicago reporter and now doing a strange website called Roseland Chicago 1972. And I'm Eric Zorn, the editor and publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, a fine online newspaper that covers all sorts of interesting things. I hope that uh, your hits on my radio show, Eric, help. Eric comes on my radio show once a week. They do. Tease it up. Kate, I'm not exactly sure what that last thing is that you do is. What is that? It is strange. It's a hybrid website that is got several sections. The heart of it is a serialized novel that's mainly set in 1972 in Roseland, which for those who don't know is the Southside neighborhood. There's a lot of Chicago history in there because um, if in the novel or on the website, you know, a bit of both. If you want to immerse yourself in the world of the 1972 characters, you can do that via one of the sections, which is called This Crazy Day in 1972. It's a peek into all five. There were five Chicago newspapers at that time. Um, I basically go through every single week uh, through 1972, um, looking at all the truly crazy stuff going on at that time. And then I also cover uh, Mike Royko columns in a whole separate section called Mike Royko 50 Years Ago Today. What are the bellwethers of 1972? When we say that, boom, I got to think what? Skyjacking. It's nuts. Like every week. Really? There are airliners being skyjacked. People skyjack with machine guns, with axes, you name it. It's nuts. People get killed. People literally get killed here in this country. There was a series of bombings. So a little um, a different type of skyjacking where extortionists would call up the airlines and say, give me you know, a million dollars or I've got bombs planted on like five of your planes. And mostly the airlines would just ignore it and figure it's not true, not even tell the passengers. But then one time there was a bomb that blew up a cockpit in a grounded plane in Las Vegas, and so they started taking it a little bit more seriously. Wow. But if you can believe it, most people at that time still did not want the bother of being searched as they entered an airplane. I was just thinking in order to avoid this. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So how do I how do I click on this then? Where do I find your stuff? What are I, what's the website? If you type into your browser browser uh, Roseland Chicago nineteen seventy two, it should pop up. Will there be pictures mm-hmm. in the Tribune of men wearing bell-bottom slacks? Uh, you will see bell-bottoms. You absolutely will see a lot of bell-bottoms, a lot of talk about miniskirts. <laughs> Fair oh. enough. Ah, well, good. We appreciate you joining us again on The Rascals. Should Chicago be a sanctuary city? Before that becomes a non-binding referendum on the ballot, the city council would need a quorum of 25 alder persons on the council floor. And Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa doesn't want this on the ballot coming up. Uh, He didn't want the council to take it up. So as to keep another alder woman, Emma Mitz, from entering the chamber, Ramirez Rosa 
stood in the door and blocked her passage. For about five seconds, she could not get in. He did not touch her, not by my estimation of the video that I saw. But he spoke with his arms slightly extended, saying what we're not sure, but entreating her not to enter. Alderman Ray Lopez, who can find controversy where there isn't and can make controversy greater where it is, was right there and he called this an assault. Lopez was standing right there. Five seconds, the guy didn't touch her. Carlos Ramirez Rosa has since resigned as the city council floor leader and his chairmanship of the zoning committee. Alderwoman Mitz, who is black, said that the episode made her feel as though she was back in the South. The vote to censure Ramirez Rosa has failed with the mayor and Mitz herself voting the measure down. Meanwhile, 20,000 migrants still need lodging, and Mayor Brandon Johnson is the executive producer of All My Alder Children. Is that a fair description of what happened, and what do you think of all of that? That's a fair description of what happened. Uh, the entire Black Caucus, which is 20 members, called on him to resign his his role as floor leader soon after that happened. Uh, they were joined by Gil Villegas, Ray Lopez, perhaps one other Hispanic alderman, but it really reached critical mass in a very short amount of time. I think it happened Thursday and by Friday, Saturday, it was almost going to be a done deal that that Ramirez Rosa would no longer be the floor leader. What's really, really interesting in the wake of all of that is what Brandon Johnson's reaction has been. Uh, and then what Carlos Ramirez Rosa's largest funder, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, has been specifically to the allegation that I think is actually perhaps more important than the allegation that she's that uh, he stood in front of Emma Metz and, and stopped her from entering the chamber. He also sent her a text that Emma Mitz read saying there's not going to be a quorum today. So you shouldn't end up you shouldn't go to City Hall. There's no, no you should you should stick to your ward. It's like she a heads up. Already, Just I'm, I'm doing you a solid up, here. Yeah, which is a lie. Um, so he sent a lie to another an other alderman uh, via text. And then more importantly, there were three aldermen separate from the Black Caucus and separate from the Latino alderman who had uh, uh, called for him to step down as floor leader. Three aldermen who had said Ramirez Rosa was holding up zoning changes in their wards essentially as retribution or to hold them up for political gain. And that has almost been lost, but that's a really serious accusation. And Brandon Johnson was asked about that at a press conference and basically said, "Okay, this guy, your zoning committee chair, he's still on the zoning committee till December 1st. And there's three people, three of his colleagues saying he's holding up their changes for political gain. Do you think that he should step down sooner from that? And further, do you think the inspector general should investigate that? Brandon Johnson gave the most incoherent, mealy mouth response to that that I've I've ever heard him make to anything, and that is really that is a no, that is a, that, I would say that's, that's a very high. Bar. Choose your it words is, carefully, sir. Response. It is a word. It is a word salad on word salad on word salad. You know, look, having an opportunity to have a transition from these past six months, we have to do it um, in a thoughtful way. Look, he's he's admitted, you know, where where he missed the mark. He admitted that. And there's a commitment for him to work towards restoration. And, you know, as far as, you know, how other attachments to government, you know, engage, like people have their right um, to signal in any way their desires to 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 have 
uh, some recourse. And, you know, I understand that that there are some real deep emotions and feelings around that and, you know, how um, what has been the, the accusations that have been put forth and how those accusations are, are, are investigated or substantiated or not, that the process that allows for that to take place, um, I have never been an obstruction to, 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 to any form or any level of government. Do you think he should stay on as chair of the Senate? As I said, that there's a process that is taking place and that he is he is resigned. It's a word super salad. And <laughs> I, 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 it's really incredible. If you want, I pulled the clip. It's on my Twitter. If you just search Austin Berg, you can watch this clip. And so I was thinking, well, this is very bizarre. Like what he can't make a simple. This is a very simple answer to this question. The inspector general should investigate any allegations of wrongdoing. And if, uh, you know, there is found to have been any kind of uh, uh a violation of the public trust or use of public office in an improper way, there should be consequences for that. Done. Instead, he gives this long rambling response about sort of, I, I can't even get into it. It's like you can't look into it or you fall into it. It's very confusing. <laughs> then the next day, Stacey Davis Gates, who is the largest donor to Brandon Johnson and the largest donor to Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who's, who's president the of the CTU. Yeah. President of the CTU, uh, Ramirez Rosa is sort of the dean of the Democratic Socialist Caucus, which they're tightly aligned with. And he's the mayor's guy on the floor. He is he is the mayor's man. Top guy. So Stacey F. Gates goes on Ben Jarofsky's show, and she is asked about this, and her response was even crazier somehow. <laughs> well, he I'm... said, those of us who lead in justice and equity are human, and we get to be multidimensional. See, the worst part of that is that Carlos cannot be human in this moment. That's the worst part of it. And to be human means that you get to be a complex figure. And this is the craziest line of all. I also don't like that Carlos wasn't able to get the benefit of the doubt inquiry from his colleagues that should have been in their chamber. Shame on Ray Lopez for breaking their fraternity sorority. Like that's a space they inhabit together. They get to moderate and modulate and deal with themselves. They deserve to be vulnerable with each other without all of us judging it from the outside. They get to make mistakes without being in headlines. I, what is she talking about? This is I, in any I, other workplace. You get fired for this. Well, this no, is that's like a corruption. Of, it's not a fraternity sorority. This is a public body. Well, they do. They do play beer pong. In, in fairness. <laughs> no, I, it, it, I heard Stacey Davis Gates on, on Ben's podcast and uh, I, I was struck also by the incoherence of of her rambling and her, the, the defense that she mounted. Uh, to to add to the narrative we've talked about right now, um, it, it's, Brandon Johnson cast the tie breaking vote. Yes, he did. Uh, it was twenty four twenty four. He on cast the that vote on the censure uh, again without giving a really good reason. After he had tried to declare the whole thing out of order because he wasn't technically in the chamber when it happened, there was some weird, weird uh, thing that he, he tried. He tried to get it sort of tabled. It, it wasn't that he was he, that he had held up zoning. He was threatening to hold up zoning approval to the uh, to these three aldermen and he and then he was he said something like well that wasn't what i meant i mean i guess i could understand how they took it that way but that wasn't what i meant well i think that's just nonsense i think i think the the uh, sniff test here tells you that he was playing big tough zoning committee chair and council floor leader and trying to put the squeeze on these people uh, on these on these colleagues and and the stakes here were so preposterously low this is an advisory referendum that, that is kind of meaningless i want to talk about that in a minute but i i guess i want to i want to turn the floor over to kate because i'm really curious what she th- thinks about this well i mean obviously 
they didn't think it was low stakes. I mean, we're saying that Ramirez Rosa was the one who didn't want it to go forward, and he was the one there trying not to get a quorum. But he is Brandon Johnson's floor leader. He was doing Brandon Johnson's bidding. I mean, Brandon Johnson wanted that. He did not want the aldermen to have a meeting on this. He didn't want to let them vote on this, which to my mind is pretty anti-democratic. It's it's the sort of thing that we associate with the kind of old time, big time, you know, democratic political machine that is allegedly on its way out via Alderman Burke this week. So just want to put that out there. The comments from Stacey Gates seems like she also doesn't want to decry what happened. It seems like being progressive is being used as, you know, being progressive, as we call it now, is being it is being used as an excuse to get in the way of basic democratic governance here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a big issue whether or not we should be a sanctuary city. It actually is kind of a big issue, something that I, I do think people should finally have a chance to weigh in on after hopefully a good long debate where we really get to talk about what it truly means, what the real policy implications of it are. But that's understood. Um, but we but we do know what the I, I, to Eric's point, I think we do know what the consequences of that are. It, they're not great. I mean, to, to declare yourself a welcoming city really doesn't have a lot of teeth to it. It doesn't change any rules or regulations. And as Heather Sharon pointed out from WTTW this week, just as a reminder, actually it was last week, but mm-hmm. the People that are coming here now from Venezuela are here legally. They're legally seeking asylum. The sanctuary city mm-hmm. status that we've staked out is for people who are non-documented immigrants. It, it, it absolutely, yeah, it, it legally has nothing to do with whether or not we're housing migrants who are being sent here from Texas. It, it's really two completely different things. It does, if I'm correct, keep Chicago officials, police from cooperating with the INS which is not always going to be a good thing. So I think it is a little bit of a complicated issue, (laughs) not an automatic slam dunk, even though it sounds overall probably like something we would probably want to keep. Why would we not want to let the aldermen discuss it? I find it really interesting that it wasn't just Ray Lopez and Anthony Beal, who were obviously the leaders of the opposition, who wanted to talk about this. There would not have been a quorum if Brandon Johnson's own chair people, which includes Emma Mitts, didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to talk about it. And there was Ray Lopez doing Brandon Johnson's bidding, physically trying to keep a quorum from happening. Did not mean Ray Ramir- Lopez. Of course not. Ramirez Rosa. Right, Ramirez Rosa, physically trying to keep Emma Mitts from coming in. That's so, the thing that is offensive to me. I mean, yeah. he didn't touch her. And if he had, I think this would be a different kind of conversation. And then to what degree? Because when I heard the word, like, he he assaulted her at the door, I thought, oh, my God, what happened? And then I saw the video. And I thought, nothing happened. But it is offensive to literally try and keep the person from doing her democratically elected process. Like, that's terrible. Ray Lopez was obviously way over the top claiming that he manhandled her. Anybody can get a pretty good look at the video via um, Channel 2 had its camera rolling. I'm I'm assuming that's the video that we've all seen. So it wasn't from a wonderful angle, but you can see he did not manhandle Emma Mitz. He did reach out towards her. 
And we can't really see from the angle whether he actually touched her arm. But even if he did, as soon as she started moving forward, I did not feel like he held her back or even attempted to truly hold her back. But he did immediately move around to stand right in front of her and try and physically block her from going in. He did do that. John, imagine you're walking in and someone you like, they know they don't want John to come to the microphone today. And they just stand in front of the door. Like what? They would be fired. That's, that's, that's not acceptable <laughs> behavior by anyone. And I think this is an example of, I think uh, uh, Kate had it spot on where it's like, we're using this progressive veneer to do the exact same Chicago machine tactics that have been in the city for a hundred years. And it's like, we can't call kids who are uh, causing mayhem a mob action because that's calling them baby Al Capones. But when Carlos Ramirez Rosa stands in front of a door and prevents someone from getting in to take a vote on behalf of their constituents, he's just being a multidimensional human. (laughs) It's it's the Chicago way, but like therapy. We just do it with therapy. Yeah, it it, it was really bad. And I and I cannot understand why what you have to do as an alderman to be censured if if that doesn't rise to that level i don't know what does and a censure of course is not like a flogging or or an expulsion from the council that that might have that would have been too much but but he they definitely needed to take a stand and say this kind of behavior is unacceptable unless what they're saying is yeah it is acceptable as long as you apologize <laughs> well they did Which hug he did. He, they did they even as hugged as long as you can yeah. hug it out but uh, i heard eric that the last time that they censured somebody was 1904 did you see that as well? Which is striking to me. All the shenanigans that have taken place on that city council floor. And this is this is the one thing that has risen to censure in 119 years or whatever it is. Wow. I guess maybe they're all worried that they're going to get censured themselves. But, uh, but to, to get back to this idea of the advisory referendum, it's an advisory vote. They want to know what the citizens of Chicago think about the sanctuary city. I think right. there's a good debate to be had. I think that it's a good idea on balance to have the sanctuary city where you don't have your local police cooperating with ICE because that will hamper the interactions between the immigrant community and police for things like domestic abuse and crime. If you have them af- people afraid to be stopped by police, if you have them afraid to deal with police in any way, uh, that's not good. I, I mean, it, but it is, it is an interesting discussion to be had, and it's one that the public has never really been invited to participate in. And I don't think that's so bad, especially in an advisory way. But, you know, Mayor Mayor Emanuel did not want an advisory vote on an elected school board either. I mean, they, the, these politicians are afraid of what the public thinks, of, of right. everybody knowing what the public thinks. And and I, I just think that is un, that's undemocratic and un-American. And I think Brandon Johnson and everyone who voted against that uh, or, or is trying to block that referendum should be ashamed of themselves. I it's mean, strange. we all expect that from Rahm Emanuel, but Brandon <laughs> Johnson is supposed to be Mr. Progressive Democracy. Transparent. Collaborative. Transparent, yeah. collaborative. The bu- the bu- that's the buzzword, right? The co- co-governance is the like second word out of his mouth, every single press release. And it's like co-governance, but only in our fraternity sorority where we need to sort everything out behind closed doors so that the people that are on my team don't get held accountable for anything. Like it, it seems because the the matter itself was so sort of low stakes compared to all the other big things that are going on. Right. Uh, it doesn't seem to rise to, you know, that uh, the level of maybe the migrant situation or the budget or things like that. But in my opinion, this is one of the most significant things that's happened in his entire administration because it reveals the, the mayhem and chaos and lack of, and really the mentality 
of Johnson and then his political arm in dealing with these sorts of well, things. Well, Stacey David Skates is not on the city council. I mean, to the degree no, that but she, she, funds, she funds most of it. I mean, there's most of the members to take money from her. So she is a, a major, major power player that looms over all of this, I think. Well, can you explain, you or any of you, so if Carlos Ramirez Rosa was seeking political advantage by holding up some zoning issues on people in his committee, what was the advantage that he would gain by holding something up? What was that all about? No, no he, he, he was threatening to do so okay. if they went into the chamber. And it's just, it's just leverage. It's just basically saying, like, there's going to be payback here if you don't do what I want you to do. I'm going to use my abuse my official position to take an official act – uh, to thwart whatever you want, right, whether so I'm or not slow it's a walk, idea. whatever you want. If in fact we get slow a walk or block it, yeah, 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 and all I mean, of that and over the yeah. sanctuary city thing. Yeah, I mean the stakes are low. I mean, it's an advisory referendum. Uh, that's what. That, that's why it's so. I mean, it's like it's not like some huge deal that he's talking right. about. It's like yeah. so part of part of it. And this may be. I didn't think about this until now. The a major major part. Uh, part of his campaign is the bring Chicago home ordinance. Right. And that actually has to go on a referendum in the same election. So if you're putting something like this on the ballot and it's going to increase turnout, especially among black and Latino residents who have proven to be sort of the, the groups demographically that are most vocally opposed to a lot of this, if that's turning them out for a no on a question and they are running a separate ballot referendum that's a yes. They need to get to a yes on the real estate transfer tax hike. That could be a reason why that, you know, he was so, so, uh, you know, over his skis on trying to get people not to put it on the ballot. Wow. That's three-dimensional chess. He, he also, obviously, they pair it directly with the issue of funding and placing the migrant housing. So really, they're viewing this as a voter referendum on whether or not we should be undertaking that, you know, extremely expensive funding of all the migrant housing. They're they're really looking at it through that lens. So they don't want something on the ballot that enables all the people who oppose having the migrant housing actually you know, vote no on something that they see as a stand-in for that. Well, it's we? definitely a proxy fight, yeah. They're all still at uh, O'Hare Airport, police stations, and shelters, right? I mean, uh, to my knowledge, no tents have been erected, and we don't have a site for the the massive tents, right? That's not – here we are, another uh, week. No, of, am I actually, wrong about that? They, they did uh, – somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that they uh, did sign a lease for that land in Brant- Brighton Park – um, to have, um, I think, up to 2,000 tents over there. And they also, um, the council did just vote to let the city buy for a dollar that land at 115th and Halstead uh, to erect another migrant tent city there. So it's progressing. How long does it take to get a tent city up? Probably not that long, huh? Good Never done. It. Yeah, we, we we wouldn't know. The, of course, the the other the undercurrent here from a lot of these communities is that we have we've had homeless people in Chicago for a long time. We've got communities in great need, and the, the city has not dug into its pockets to help those people. And now suddenly the migrants are here, and and you know I I see it's an emergency. These people are showing up with nothing, and we got to do something with them. Um, whereas these some of these other people are 
are just poor, right? But but they're complaining loudly that that all of a sudden the priorities, the funding priorities, are are, are headed to this new population rather than the old population that's been here. And that that and that is a, a major source of people yelling and screaming about you know where's my money, where's our housing, where's you, you hear that a lot, and that's sort of the whole thing that's bubbling underneath this right now. There's two really good uh, if people don't want to wait on the government to solve uh, this problem two really good Facebook groups that have been around for a few months that I've checked out and are fantastic. One is called the Refugee Community Connection, Refugee Community Connection. And then the other is called Shy Welcome, C-H-I Welcome. And it's just a ton of people who have tons of things going on in their lives. We're just volunteering to coordinate different things for different individual migrant families. And it's really great. Wow. And I wish the city would sort of shout those things out more because it seems like they're doing a lot more than a lot of leaders are doing. Well, I'm glad to hear that because we've all been so frustrated by the inaction by the city, the state, the federal government, etc. And whenever it does seem to fall in the public's lap, we just see people screaming, not in my backyard. And when I travel around the city, I will not infrequently see somebody in a van unloading waters and clothes to migrants. So it does seem to be happening ad hoc, but I don't know of anybody that's coordinating it or how that's even happening. So uh, thank you, Austin. I needed to know that somebody is taking a little initiative here on their fellow human beings. I think there's a lot going on, but it's on a case-by-case basis and not in an organized manner. Oh, yeah. I, know I live in Hyde Park, and we um, we have a shelter at uh, Lakeshore Motel, not too far away from me. And um, there was a meeting that did draw, you know, quite a few people who were not happy about it, but it's going forward just fine. And there's a lot of uh, volunteer drives, um, you know, whipped up by the community groups right around it to collect coats and, you know, you name it, just about anything. And so there's been several things, several drives like that already that people can go to but it's it's just not organized it's different groups depending on the location let's move to the edward burke trial now the former alderman is up for racketeering a number of counts they're trying to select a jury they are in the process of selecting a jury and maybe the end of this week or certainly by next week the trial will begin it's been kind of interesting to see what the questions are, the the jury selection process. I don't know if you've been following some of the posting by Jason Meisner about the questions the judge has been asking and the responses he's been getting from the various jurors. Uh, it's it's kind of comical in a way. But, you know, kind of comical in a, hey, let's randomly just ask people off the street, what's your life like? Do you have a pet? You know, what do you watch on TV? Have you traveled? And I don't know what the jury selection process is supposed to be like, but it doesn't seem to be, I don't know how to finish that sentence. It seems kind of random, you know, and, and kind of fun in a way. And hopefully they'll get people that are not so prejudiced by any pretrial publicity or feelings about Burke. But the last thing I'll say is this. One thing that has stood out at me is, while we all seem to be dialed in on city politics and we try and educate ourselves about it, most folks, it seems, don't know anything about this. This has been in the works for like four or five years, and he's one of the most famous politicians in the city. And 
one of the most hated politicians in the city. And a lot of folks go, yeah, I know the name. Maybe that that's kind of what they're yeah. getting. Did he play for the Cubs? Burke? Uh, Burke, Burke? Yeah, he's like a third baseman <laughs> in the 70s. Some of the questions they've, they've been asking uh, about, like, what, what what's the name of your bird? And, and, and what was the, there's another one about. Are, are you a and Ted Lasso? Uh, because are are you a Ted or 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 are you a Roy Kent? You know, as I don't quite understand uh, what this wadir is all about. But uh, you, I mean, I've been through jury selection a couple of times, and the questions are always very dry. And so this is kind of surprising to me. I've never been called to federal court, but uh, it's really a Cook County. They're saying. What's your job? Have you ever been the victim of a crime? That kind of stuff. But never, never, they ne- nobody's ever asked them the name of my bird. Well, you sort of get the cut of the jib, as we said on the radio today. Like, you get a feel for these people, and maybe that's relevant. Engage them in conversation. See if they have some hostilities or friendliness, if they're chatty and collaborative or cooperative. And I'm sure that's what they're really trying to suss out here is what are these people like? Could they come to a fair conclusion? But they're Jeopardy contestants. Tell us a little something about yourself. I know, it's kind of like that. Juror 22 is a 55-year-old woman from Lombard who has seven children, ages 14 to 34. The judge says, tell us about them. And she says, which end do you want me to start with? After running through everybody, the judge says, so, who's cooking Thanksgiving dinner? She says, that would be me. Uh, one more, uh, although I've got a bunch here. Meiser's just been busy doing this. It's been fun. Juror 27, 52-year-old man from Woodridge, where he says, I live with my gorgeous wife of five years. Just wanted to get that on the record. The courtroom bursts into laughter. Burke's lawyer, Chris Gare, says, Your Honor, can we get a transcript? Boy, considering the stakes here, I'm, it, it seems to be fairly lighthearted what's going on so far. It, it's kind of sad, though, that almost nobody knows who he is. When uh, Patrick Daly Thompson was uh, on trial last year or the year before, um, most of the jurors didn't know who the Dailies were. I mean, <laughs> oh, no. who the Dailies were. Yeah. And I remember when that trial ended, one of the jurors said, I still don't know who the Dailies are. Maybe I'll go home and Google it. But no, wait a minute. I'm not going to. I've got better things to do. Well, it's funny that you you mentioned that because one of the women said, I thought this was just a scenario. I didn't realize these were real people until yesterday. She thought it was was an Ender's Game kind of situation. (laughs) (laughs) Juror number 30 is a 30-year-old woman born in Little Village. She lives in Naperville. She's a juvenile probation officer in DuPage. She filled out the questionnaire for the case. She, quote, thought it was a scenario. I didn't realize these were real people until yesterday. There's a really awesome book called um, Don't Make No Waves, Don't Back No Losers. It's by this guy, Rakoff, and it's about the Daily Machine and... The title of the book, the Don't Make No Waves part, is really, I mean, Ed Burke was a very larger-than-life figure, but he never, to my knowledge, had a citywide election, right? I don't think he never ran for mayor. He, he, basically, 50,000 people in his, maybe once? Well, he tried. He, he tried. He tried. wanted, he was in the primary for the special election um, to State's uh, attorney, right? Washington, but then oh, was Washington? Richard, he he Washington. dropped out and back daily, but and he also yeah. did initially run for state's attorney and got beat in the primary by Richard M. Daly. Yeah, very few citywide runs, and essentially all of his power came from his fifty thousand person ward. And similar to Madigan, all of his power came really from this very tiny 
district. Uh, and the best part about his case, I think, is that we literally just saw an example of what he went to prison for. You have a an alderman callously sort of throwing out the fact that he's going to hold up some zoning change for some other reason. Now, that was all in the public context, but you could easily see if that person's throwing that around in City Hall, they're certainly, you know, you could expect that they might be doing something outside of that because we still have the system whereby rather than having sort of a city department decide a lot of the mm-hmm. ticky-tack zoning changes, mm-hmm. you have aldermanic privilege where aldermen decide it and they defer to one another. And that's where things often get hairy. In the case of Burke, it was getting business for his law firm. But this talk about low stakes. I mean, the one that just I always think of is a stupid Burger King parking lot that somebody wanted to pave. And rather than just say, yeah, why, why is that even on my desk? It's like, no, how can we leverage this so that I have to be their tax attorney and that'll be good for me? What a shakedown. What a stupid shakedown. That's how he made most of his money, though, um, was through getting business for his law firm, either getting named as a co-counsel by people that he was throwing business to from the finance committee or by getting like real business where he would get people's tax appeals approved because he's at Burke and then either vote on them in the council prior to the ethics ordinance in 1998 or do all the work up until the very moment of the vote and then recuse himself after oh, the election. Wow. Wow. So that's how that's how he was really making all his, you know, personal money. Wouldn't you think by the time you get to be 79 that you've made enough money that you don't have to go after Burger King? That this game isn't so fun anymore. And uh, they weren't it wasn't all a burger. Like you did have an eight hundred million dollar project at the post office that he stuck his nose into. So maybe that was more important to him. But, but but what do you guys think of this? Per the request of Ed Burke's attorneys, the wall display on the 25th floor featuring famous public corruption cases at the courthouse, including Rod Blagojevich and George Ryan, both former governors who went to jail, uh, has been covered up so the Burke jurors don't see it. Uh, Meisner says it looks suspiciously like brown butcher paper, which is just a fun aside. But I didn't know, first of all, that we had a uh, some sort of public display of Blago and George Ryan and other people that were convicted and went to jail. But I don't think you should cover that up. Is that prejudicial? Is that influencing the jury? Guys, what's your thought about that? You get to decide, Austin, go. Yeah, if you had like you were getting a hearing on a shoplifting case or like you're on a jury for like, you know, some robbery. And then you have to walk through like the hall of shame of all the robbers who had been taken down. I think that that would probably be in poor form. (laughs) Well, then it should never be there. Then it should never be there. But to me, it shouldn't be there. Okay. uh, Fair enough. I just see it as the scales being balanced of justice. If you do a crime, I don't know if they had them in orange jumpsuits in this display. I'm not exactly sure what they were looking at, but I'm not offended by it, particularly since I know those guys were guilty. And I think a, a little shame or dis, a reminder of that it doesn't doesn't bother me one bit. Burke's not been found guilty yet. I get that. If I'm Burke or one of his lawyers, I, I'm impressed that they thought of that. And, and I would expect no less really from Alderman Burke because he was always all about the details um just in every possible way and you know i i agree with austin if you're walking past the hall of shame of the the sort of crime that you're being accused of every day or the jurors are uh, 
that just can't be in your favor. And <laughs> it, it's yeah. it's really this could be a very very tight case, I think, because from what I understand, I mean, yeah, they've got them on over a hundred recordings, right? And some of them are going to be great, like uh, the one where he says, um, "The tuna." Did we land the tuna yet? So there's some great tapes that are going to be heard. But on the other hand, he didn't actually end up committing any direct crimes or actually getting any money. And so it might be a little, a little, um, you know, a little tight there as to which way it's going to go. So you really, you need every tiny little bit um, in your favor. I totally would have at least tried. I'm surprised maybe that the judge went along with it, but I would if I'm, the, if I'm the prosecution, I just stand up and say, Your Honor, did we land the tuna? The state rests. That's all we need. <laughs> Anybody that uses the word tuna is somehow doing something they shouldn't be doing. Eric, do you cover up the display? I, I do if the jurors actually have to walk by it. My recollection of trials in the federal building is the jurors use a separate entrance and they come up the back elevators and they're, they don't mingle going in or out with the, the press or the, the gallery. So I'm not sure what – if you don't want the – I think it's right that the jurors not walk by that. I think that it could be prejudicial, and it probably shouldn't be there in the first place. It should be somewhere else where mm-hmm. jury members don't see it. I'm a big believer in not hassling juries. Uh, there's this tendency that that, that uh, people have to – Say what during some during the Van, Jason Van Dyke trial, for instance, the police officer who was convicted of killing um, uh, Laquan McDonald, uh, where there mm-hmm. were people outside chanting, you know, justice for Laquan McDonald and chanting at the jurors as they went into the courthouse. I think that's really wrong. And I mean, I thought Van Dyke was guilty and, and I had no problem with the verdict, but I don't think that, that jurors should be feeling any public pressure and that, that and they shouldn't be influenced in, in either direction. They should come to as much of a blank slate as they can. I mean, it, it's too bad and kind of weird that these people from Naperville have never heard of what's going on and they think it's fictional scenario or whatever. But you you want them to come at it with as open mind as possible. Mm-hmm. You don't want you don't want protesters out front saying convict Ed Burke and you don't want people inside uh you know saying acquit Ed Burke anything like that. It's like it 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 seems like that any any attempt to influence a jury anything that would Im- influence a jury is wrong. Well, just speaking of courtroom strategies, what do you make of what Donald Trump and his team and his sons have been doing in New York? Talk about a strategy, if you will. Uh, Maybe it's Donald Trump just being unhinged and angry, and this is what happens. Or maybe since his practices have already been judged to be fraudulent, that what they're going to try and do is just make such a circus out of the thing that they'll have a reason to ask for it to be thrown out. Maybe they'll get some sympathy at the next level. Let's just talk about that in general, either about Letitia James' case or the decorum in the courtroom, because he has lashed out so much so that at one point Judge Angeron said, I will have you taken down from the stand, and then I will judge that negatively which I can. You, you, if you if you take the Fifth Amendment, what is it in a criminal case uh, that can't be used against you? But if you don't testify in a civil case, it can be. And if he's thrown off, then the judge says, "And I'm going to assume the worst, and that will hurt you." Well, the strategy seems to be that, uh, gee, the, the the accountants and lawyers were were doing this, and what did we know? We just signed off on it. We were busy and important people. And then the other day, they asked. Uh, Trump, who is responsible for making sure these things are right in your organization? He said everybody. 
which undercuts his entire defense that he's not personally responsible for it. Uh, it just seems to be uh, the defense is that I don't know, I don't remember. Uh, and I think you're right. He's, I think he's just trying to, he's, first of all, he's trying to use this as a pulpit to speak to his followers who think that this is all a political witch hunt. Uh, and he's also trying to lay the groundwork for an appeal to get the judge or the prosecutors to say something that indicates that, that they're biased against him or that they've taken an unfair step. That, that's all I can figure because it, it doesn't seem like it's, it's going, it's not going to work on the judge. Yeah. They're, they're going to get, they're going to get a, a I mean, he's already been found guilty of, of or found responsible, liable for for fraud. God. Now we're just in the, sort of the, the penalty phase, and I think he's going to get hit with a, a major, major penalty in part because of his behavior. If they say he can't practice business in New York, I wonder what that means. He owns. So is he going to have to divest? Is he going to have to sell off his assets? I mean, if if he has a company and they bar you from doing business in that state. What happens then? I don't know exactly what the machinations of that would be. I don't know if any of us do. I have not heard that question asked or answered. No, me neither. And I, of course, the real question is, will it mean that he has to divest himself of our Trump Tower so that they take I've wondered, down? because that well, has been mentioned. I, that yeah. might be the angle for the city council to take those five letters off, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. The more... The more attention he can get on his behavior in some of these trials is probably to his advantage politically. I mean, he, he's a master of being in the news, and and this is getting him lots of uh, attention ahead of his his primary. So there there's obviously like collateral damage and maybe other consequences that will come from that. But in terms of his goals, I think it's probably doing what he wants. I don't remember the percentage that I saw, but the number of people who said they would vote for him, even if he was found guilty, was enough to win the election, you know. I mean, it, it certainly doesn't erode his base. But I am of an opinion that this case and all the other cases, particularly if he's found guilty or especially libelous here, libelous isn't the right word, but maybe it is libel, yeah, yeah, that maybe that will sort of diminish the people who were on the fence about him. Poor Joe Biden will have a chance. Uh, what was it? Uh, six states, according to the New York Times, they surveyed swing states, and in only one is Joe Biden beating Donald Trump. I know that's a slice in time way ahead of an election with a lot of eventualities. Even in Georgia, the former president is beating Joe Biden by nine points, which still just surprises me. Surprises me. Eric, were you surprised by that? Not really. I think that the Biden campaign has been fairly slow to get going. And who can blame them? It's a year out. Why would you spend all your money right now trying to influence these opinion polls? I, I do think that some of the Trump luster is going to wear off. I and mean, we've seen and we saw in the results of the elections on Tuesday night that the um, Trump has no coattails. I mean, he endorsed the challenger to uh, Governor Bashir in Kentucky and that, and that guy won by five points. And, uh, of course, the abortion issue around the country has, has proven to be a real uh, drag on Republican candidates and, and Republicans in general. And so, uh, you know, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not too surprised by this this poll because I think Biden has not really gotten his message out yet. And when it comes down to a binary choice between Trump and Biden, I, I've got to think that that this sensible middle part of the country is going to say, we can't have four more years of this craziness, and it might be the last election we'll ever have if we elect this guy. I'm just not as optimistic at all, and I feel like, can't we just solve this by President Biden figuring out that he 
should not be running for re-election. Um, did anybody see anything at all of this representative Dean Phillips who is uh, challenging him from in Minnesota? The, yeah, from Minnesota. I saw him on Bill Maher last week. He was actually very funny. Very, very yeah, I, I, delivery. I was impressed. I saw I saw that show also, and I thought that he was he was disarming and quick. He made some some good points. He didn't seem abrasive. He also isn't really he's not that negative about Biden. He just says, you know, I agree with him on almost everything. I just think he's it's time to move on to the next generation. And, and I think that, too. Oh, I yeah. Think he's been, I think Biden has been a pretty good president uh, all in all. But I think it's time for the Democrats to turn the page and it's time for the Republicans to turn the page, too. You don't need two octogenarians going at it uh, for president. I just think it's it's time for the next generation to, or, or another generation to to move in. David Axelrod even said that Joe Biden should step down, should step down. That he is did. not run again. Yeah. Axelrod said that. Did, did he say that exactly? Or, or was I, it more like I think he was a little vague about it, but that was certainly the implication. But but yeah, I think I think he was he, he hedged it a bit. But anyway, that's the upshot. But yeah, you're right, Eric. I may be overstated. But um, at the end of the day, I think that's where he's going with that. But then what does that mean? The Kamala Harris then would be the candidate or the governors of Michigan or California or this congressman nobody's ever heard of from Minnesota. I mean, I, maybe it's not too late for Joe Biden to have a moment. I don't see why it is too late. I mean, um, Pritzker is obviously maneuvering to be ready. Gavin Newsom is maneuvering to be ready. Gretchen Whitmer. Wait a minute. What uh, about the vice president? She, I'm sure she oh, thinks she's next in line, right? Well, you know, she's not the incumbent president, so she's not automatically the Democratic nominee if Biden drops out. That's She'll have true. to actually race against three and I, governors and, and Dean Phillip. <laughs> yes. And, who, and whoever Vivek Ramaswamy is, who's 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 that <laughs> snappy, smart-ass, rich, self uh, Oh, that's Pritzker. Newsom seems like, I mean, definitely. The problem is all of them are going to have to deal with the question among black voters of why it wasn't a Kamala. And that's a that's a pretty steep hill to climb if you're a white guy from California. What are her polls right now? Um, she's been pretty unpopular, but in general, but I don't know how that breaks down. And she did not run a very good campaign for president when she was in the primary season in, in 2020 or 2019 when they were they were jockeying. She ran a pretty bad campaign. I, I can imagine that if Biden were to drop out and someone like Newsom or Pritzker or Whitmer, one of those people would, would take over, that they might keep her as vice president because she does appeal to a, a certain and strong voting block. And I think dumping her for you know, a, another white male, say, would be a, a pretty bad political decision. Let's talk just for a little bit about an elected school board well, it's a state law, but it has to do with Chicago is the only uh, municipality in the in the state that that has an appointed school board rather than an elected school board. And there's been a call for years for an elected school board in Chicago. And and then in 2021, they passed a law saying that they're going to phase it in. I think they're going to just be 10, 10 members of the board. We're going to be elected next year. And then and then two more years after that, maybe 2027, something like that. I'm, I'm not sure the years, but it's it's phasing in to be 20. Uh, all of them elected. And there was there's a movement in Springfield afoot this week to accelerate that because it's very complicated if you have 
10 that are appointed and you're trying to create districts and who gets to vote and what if you carve it up into 20 districts and so people in half the districts don't get to vote so uh the uh, uh senate president Harmon decided he wanted to advance it and then there's a competing proposal in the house to move things forward but in any case we're going to have this 20-person elected school board, and and if experience elsewhere is any guide, and I'm thinking of Los Angeles, you're going to have what uh, Joe Scarborough says, a certain kind of show where you're dealing with with all these people running for school board. Millions of dollars are going to pour into this race from all over the country, from people who are on one side or the other, teachers' unions and and school choice, and and, uh, voters are not going to know who these people are, and it's. I think it's just going to be kind of a nightmare, and the accountability is going to be almost zero. And uh, I think people who wished for an elected school board are going to be sorry that they wished for it in the end. I think it's another example of sort of good rhetoric being papered over poor governance. So the good rhetoric is like, yeah, of course, let's elect the school board. Everywhere else in the state elects it. Why can't we? Why should the mayor appoint it? And that effort in Springfield was led by Robert Martwick, by the way, who also happens to be a property tax attorney, that law went forward with almost no consideration for the for how the board will be formed, what are the qualifications, what do the districts look like? And now we're in this really big mess because like people have to, this election's next year, people have to decide, like have to get signatures, have to get on the ballot, people have to know if they're in a district where they can run. And it's all being done very last minute. And we'll see if it, if it, uh, if they end up pulling it out, maybe they will talk tomorrow in, in veto session. Another example of this that happened this week was with the elected police councils, which we had for the first time in the last mayoral election at the beginning of the year. The one covering downtown, there's three members. One of them left. One of them is on a medical leave. And they uh, uh, the mayor is supposed to appoint another person to fill that vacancy so they can have me- uh, monthly meetings as required in statute to keep police accountable do what the, the these little boards are supposed to do. The mayor sat on this application for four months and then rejected it. And now there aren't enough people on this board to even call, call a quorum to, to hold a meeting. So in theory, like all this democracy sounds really, really awesome and great. And then when you get into the details, it's often like actually obscuring and making it more difficult to enact change because people don't know what's going on. I kind of don't like either option. I don't want everybody to vote. I don't think they'd be informed enough and it'd be partisan and a few people with a little bit of money would be making big decisions. But I don't like giving all the power to somebody or bodies that will just appoint them. I guess ideally we would all be super informed and we would all go yeah. and do our due diligence and vote. But. Uh, Chicago has democracy on a lot of things that don't matter and not democracy on a lot of things that do matter. It's kind of our unfortunate bargain. Is that the water reclamation district that you're talking about there or something like that? Right. Yeah. We have, you know, citywide offices like treasurer or controller that don't don't really have much power in any way. And the mayor has all of the power. Yeah. Our city council members don't have much. So ultimately, I don't mind having the mayor be responsible for education and having the mayor appoint the school board. And, I, and it's not ideal. But I also think that asking the public to elect school board when it's, there are people going to be people they don't know are going to be running for boards and they're going to there's going to be money pouring in from everywhere and so it's going to just going to turn into this big proxy battle from around from around the country and i think that could end up being a nightmare as well so 
given my choice of poisons, I think I would rather have the mayor held accountable because I, I'm only going to be able to vote for one, I think, and maybe two. I'm not sure how this is all going to work, but I'm only going to be able to vote for one member of that school board. I, and I can't, I, how can I hold anybody accountable if, if schools go off the rails? Speaking yeah, of, I should have said city clerk, not controller, by the way. If we vote for clerk, we, we should have a controller. Speaking of education, there was a joint statement urging Illinois state lawmakers to oppose any extensions in the Invest in Kids Tax Credit Scholarship Program, which we've talked about in the last couple of podcasts here. I'm reading from this statement by Jan Schakowsky, but she's joined by other um, members of Congress, including Raja Krishnamurthy and Danny Davis, etc. So they are, against something that uh, Austin has championed here. Austin wrote then this tweet, I presume in response to that, Austin, is that what inspired this tweet that you put out? The first thing I thought of is, why is Jan Schakowsky kicking poor kids in the shins for no reason? And then I remembered the one encounter I've had in my life with Jan Schakowsky, and it all made sense. You tweeted, I once found myself on a flight to Washington, D.C. with Jan Schakowsky. After we landed, I helped take her luggage down from the overhead bin. Just before stepping off the plane, a very kind flight attendant said to her, Hope you had a nice flight. Schakowsky sharply replied, It was horrible. Flight attendant stunned. Oh, Schakowsky, this is the smallest plane I've ever been on. It certainly was not, you write. Then she walked off. As Schakowsky congratulates herself for trying to kill 5,000 scholarships for black and brown children in Illinois, I'm reminded of this petty cruelty toward a completely innocent working person. Okay, touche, but wow, I wasn't sure if that was not just sufficiently off-topic or off-radar that that was... um, an unkind or unfair, unkind, who cares, unfair tweet. Austin, defend yourself. It was a true story. Uh, it was a petty cruelty toward a totally innocent person. You're one of the most powerful people on earth, and you're, like, complaining to a very kind flight attendant. Like, I'm sure they'll, they'll you know, pitch that up the ladder, that the plane needs to be bigger for you next time. And it, it happened to be on a flight with the entire I was on a flight with the entire uh, Democratic Illinois Democratic Congressional uh, Caucus. So I sat next to um, Lauren Underwood, but Sean Caston was there. Like the, everybody was there and no, everyone else was fine. Like she was just being really mean for no reason. But this didn't happen yesterday. So no, this was like pre-COVID. Well, that's but, my but, point. Like, so you've had this. Because she's trying to kill the scholarship program. And the thing I didn't mention that tweet, but will be in the Wall Street Journal probably tomorrow is that. Her husband has gotten paid $100,000 in the last three years from the American Federation for Teachers. Her husband, Bob Kramer, who has a longstanding, you know, Democratic consulting gig, you know, like maybe disclose that the next time you take a policy position that your husband's getting paid by by the person espousing that position. Austin and I disagree about um, investing kids, and we've had that conversation several times here. But I will say that there – I can't remember where I read this saying, but but it, it goes something like, you can tell a lot about somebody by how they treat people who they don't have to be nice to. That was a crummy thing. I'll take Austin as word. That was a crummy thing that Schakowsky did, and you know she had a bad day or whatever, and and shame on her for that. I'm not sure exactly the connection between her being irascible like that to somebody to to a, a flight attendant and this program, but but uh, I I do agree that that's that's pretty crappy. I wonder if we should look up all of our local politicians on that website where waiters and waitresses report on. Um, 
you know, people's behavior. Uh, that's really the best way to know. There are, is a website there. for that? There is, is. There is. Craponfamouspeople.com or something? I forget the name of it, but I will look into that. <laughs> well, One of the most revealing things about Lori Lightfoot's character, do you remember that whole Yelp review saga where she like left this crazy Yelp review about a limousine driver? No. And then the limousine driver responded being I, like, this is not true at all. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It is possible that people who are well-known come under more scrutiny than the rest of us. So any of us, famous or not, might have moments we would take back if we could. And that might have been Jan Schakowsky's. But because you're a member of Congress, oh, no, someone's going to put that in their back pocket. And they're going to use it or tell it at a cocktail party or call in on a radio show and and – I think that the relevance then of those anecdotes should be gauged when we use them. If it's just for fun or entertainment or shock value, that's great. But if you're trying to use that and say, okay, and therefore she's inconsiderate to kids of color, that's that's the divide I can't exactly jump over. I thought yeah, it was I'm great. The type of person who's mean to flight attendants is the only type of person who can ever oppose this. But he's, <laughs> he's a federal government official. There's really like it is not relevant to her job to weigh in on this issue. And, well, that's 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 the good point. But it is. But it is relevant to um, her spouse's work. And the fact that that was, you know, it's just a total drive by slap in the face to a bunch of families who are literally in Springfield, as she was writing that statement, in Springfield trying to save these scholarships for their kids. Well, that's, that's the problem. So how did the Wall Street heard. Journal reach out to you on that then? Oh, I talk with them all the time. Uh, important, so, to, important to uh, keep all those folks up to date on Chicago and Illinois stuff. Did you talk to them about the Cubs managerial situation? That did not come up. Eric has been writing about that. Eric, let's finish on $8 million a year for a Cubs well, manager. Well, I just think it's absurd that a manager, most of the sabermetricians who look at this say that a good manager is worth a couple of wins a year, two, three wins a year, maybe. Um, and two to three wins a year is not worth $8 million a year. And I think if they spent that money on prospects and their farm system and whatever, it'd be a much better investment in the future of the team that people, everyone seemed to think that, that Ross was a good manager. I mean, just what he, he just, you know, he didn't get it done right at the end of the year, but is it really him? I mean, baseball is a game of individuals doing individual acts. It's not, I mean, it's a, it's a team game, but really it's like, you're all alone at the plate. The balls hit you in the outfield. You're all alone. I mean, there's a couple of plays like a double play where you have to have some coordination, but, but these are these players not playing up to their potential or, or having bad weeks. And how is that Ross's fault? Or playing just, to their and, potential. And they, yeah. Or whatever. It's like, you know, it's like the, the general manager is the one who gets the team together and the players are the ones who win or lose the games. And the manager is worth, like I said, maybe maybe a good manager inspires people or, or pulls the relief pitcher at the right time or calls for the double steal at the right time uh, and and can be credited with a couple of wins a season. But is that worth $8 million? And, John, on the radio the other day, you and I, we could do, we'd do like a college of coaches thing. I bet we'd do it for way less than that. I certainly <laughs> would. I would, I, would, I, would do it, I would do it for $1 million. It would seem to me to make sense then if they are going to get out the checkbook and write out massive checks to marquee players, right? Like if you're going to spend $40 million over five years to get the manager from the Brewers, and they say Craig Council is 
like the best manager out there. He, good in the clubhouse. He was a great player himself, and he's managed well in Milwaukee. So if he's the best available manager and money is no object – and what really wins games are players, then hopefully money will be no object either, that they will find a way to spend as much money as it takes to get whatever they need. I guess. I it just It seems to me like a really poor use of resources. How much money do the Ricks have? Oh, oh I don't think we need tag, no, any tag days for them, but, but uh, I, I, it just seems like a, a crazy way to spend money. Yeah, um, well, you could be investing in other in other areas, especially since David Ross is liked. I mean, and I think let's put it this way: I think that most folks thought that they did about as well as they could up until the last few weeks at the beginning of this past baseball season. Who did you think was going to be a better team? If you said one team has a shot at the playoffs, would you have said Sox or Cubs? I think most of us would have said White Sox, right? You bring up the White Sox again makes me sad about Tony La Russa. I was really hoping he could reprise his role as a fantastic manager, and what a mess that was. Seems like a, one of the worst moves of, <laughs> in, of the season, maybe, like coach manager-wise. And that made me sad as a long-time Tony La Russa fan yeah no kidding that's not how he's remembered around here austin's actually now yeah, got his that, head down on the table and he's shaking it it's tragic what is austin is also speaking as a cardinals fan i just want to point that out yes that should be noted he's still making a lot less than his players though right uh he'll actually be out earning some of them put it this way he will be the highest paid general manager in baseball ever no he's a manager not general manager. pardon me manager yeah. yeah austin kate and eric thanks for joining us kate i hope that you stay well and uh, everybody at your home uh, stays well i know you guys are suffering from a little bit over there and a uh, little little thanks. touch of the rona my, my my COVID test this morning was still negative after uh, five days uh, sharing the, the condo with my husband. So Who does have it? And was there the feeling like, did you always think, I've, I've wondered about these Novids, like, did you always think, it's chasing me, it's around the corner, I know it's going to catch me someday. Did you sort of have that feeling or no? You thought you no, were No, no. I was, after, after this much time, three years, I was really beginning to feel a little invulnerable. I was beginning to think, I was one of those super rare people who just either couldn't get it or if I was getting it, I had no symptoms, so I didn't have to worry about oh, yeah, it. I, yeah, 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 I did. Or I maybe you're one of those like people her. they would draw blood from and say, what is the secret sauce running through these veins that they have that we don't, that we could replicate in a laboratory or something like that? Mm-hmm. Laboratory. That, that's that's oh. my, my Simon Bar Sinister version of the word laboratory. <laughs> We're produced by Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams. We'll drop another podcast on you next week. Okay, Talk guys. Whee! Hey. Thank you, Kate. Our best to you all. Thank you. Well yeah. done. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Good to see you Good guys. Best to Ron. Yeah. Good. See you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 